Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, as the Defence Force faces its worst attrition rate in decades, a top-level review could fundamentally change the shape and the role of New Zealand's armed forces. Is there a foreseeable scenario in which New Zealand would reintroduce an Air Force combat wing? Uh, potentially. Then, for the first time ever, the Opportunities Party has had a candidate elected to political office. Who, what, where? And a global expert on climate change policy comes to New Zealand with a pitch for Kiwi farmers. So there are multiple opportunities and really exciting new technologies. I work with a company that does cultivated steak. It's lab-grown steak. Hmm, Rekha, interesting. We'll have that interview for you shortly, but we begin this morning with the future of our Defence Force. Minister Penny Henare has announced an expert panel to review the future role and shape of the Defence Force. The panel's headed by Sir Brian Roach and includes former Deputy Prime Minister Sir Don McKinnon and Pacific geopolitical expert Professor David Capey. The makeup of the panel itself is telling. Minister Penny Henare and I sat down at Parliament late yesterday. Why do we need a defence review? Uh, well, we need to make sure that after COVID-19 we've got a number of challenges that we need to rise to and to make sure that our defence force and our defence policy are fit for purpose in these changing times. The last lot of this kind of work was done around 2017-2018 and you'll already realise that a lot has happened between now and then. Uh, and uh, we've got to make sure we've got a defence force and policy fit for purpose moving forward. So when you first announced the review, you said it was because of three main reasons. COVID-19, the escalating impacts of climate change and the intensification of geostrategic competition. When that last review came out, though, climate change and geostrategic competition were concerned. So, so why do we need another review off the back of the last one? Well, because you've just maybe conveniently missed out COVID-19, which has had a huge impact on the Defence Force itself and, of course, on our economy and global economies. So it's, we've got to make sure that when we look towards how we spend uh, and how we prepare for spending and, and defence into the future, that those... Those COVID-19 COVID lessons uh, are well learned and that we can rebound from COVID-19 stronger than uh, most other countries. So what are your concerns when it comes to geostrategic competition? Uh, well, I made it clear uh, since my tenure as Defence Minister that the Pacific is very much a priority for us and we know um, that there are significant geostrategic uh, competition uh, matters in the Pacific uh, that all countries are looking at, not just New Zealand, of course, uh, our friends across the ditch in Australia look towards the Pacific and so too do the US uh, and Canada uh, and Japan as well. So we want to make sure that we can coordinate and understand what those risks are in the Pacific in the first instance. But if we look further afield, of course, the challenge in Ukraine and Russia uh, is another one that's, of course, this year has uh, meant that we've got to be uh, mindful of all of those uh, strategic competitions. It would be ignorant of us uh, to think that uh, what happens up in Ukraine or even in the Middle East doesn't have an impact on us down here in the Pacific. So uh, that's the geostrategic competition we're looking towards. Is it China? Uh, it is uh, a number of actors and of course we know China's recent moves into the Pacific and uh, as our Prime Minister has already stated, we just want to be clear that if you want to be an actor in the Pacific, you come recognising the international rules-based order uh, and, of course, the relationships and the sovereignty of those countries. Uh, what, what I know when I talk to our Pacific neighbours is uh, even they're tired of people coming in with a paternalistic view uh, and trying to tell them what's best for them. We want to continue to support their sovereignty. And in order for us to do that, we need those who look towards the Pacific to come in uh, with an open hand to everyone that acts in the Pacific. Has China not done that so far? Uh, well, uh, we've known that they've always been uh, active in the Pacific, but of course uh, there have been of more overt uh, movements in the past wee while, and of course uh, the challenge in Solomon Islands has already been well discussed in my time over there and in my discussions with uh, Minister Vecchi in my time there. Uh, 
they still look towards New Zealand as well as trusted partners and trusted friends and we want to make sure that we can continue to enhance those relationships while also supporting them as they deal with others who come into their neighbourhood. So aside from the Solomon Islands deal, has any other behaviour on the part of China concerned you in the Pacific? Uh, not overtly, it hasn't. Um, we, we continue to look across the Pacific and talk to our neighbours about uh, some of the things that are happening in their neck of the woods and there isn't anything, uh, to my mind, that is of outright concern. Is China being too aggressive? Well, look, China's made it quite clear what their position is on these matters. What's your view? Are they being too, too aggressive? Oh, it's... I don't have a view about the way that they, I'm sure you have a view. <laughs> that they conduct their business. Well, I've just made it clear that the Pacific is our background, is our, is our backyard, sorry, and this is our New Zealanders part of the Pacific. So, of course, I take great concern of what happens in the Pacific, and I've made those quite you clear. You said, though, you were concerned about countries not following the international rules-based order, uh, countries not perhaps respecting the sovereignty of Pacific nations. So I, I just want some specifics there. It, is it China you are referencing with those concerns? Uh, no, it's not just China. Who else? There are others. Who? Uh, other actors that come into the who, Pacific. Who? If it's, if, if it's... Well, look, and I want to be clear too that uh, while there are a number of large countries that look towards the Pacific as a new geostrategic area, um, we just want to make sure that regardless of who they are that come into the region, that those rules-based order that we talk about and the architecture of security in this region is maintained. And um, very soon I'll have a catch-up again with my colleague, um, Minister Miles, Deputy Prime Minister Miles in Australia, to continue to discuss these matters. Why will you name China but not name those other countries? Well, look, um, it's well known what's happened in the Pacific and, of course, Solomon Islands is... the but, but which are the, the other countries that were not following the international rules-based order? Like I said, we're just concerned for all actors that come into the Pacific. How might China's future moves then affect what we might consider to be a defence force that is fit for purpose? Mm. Well, if we look towards the response to the Tonga uh, eruption at the beginning of the year, what we know is there was huge response from other nations, but it was poorly coordinated. China was also included in that response. So... That's a clear example of how can we better coordinate to make sure that actually what we are providing to Haidar in the Pacific uh, is exactly what it needs and it's responsive and it creates resilience in those countries. So we can do those things better. Uh, for other parts, of course, we need to make sure that um, the sovereignty matters that I've already talked about continue to be maintained. Uh, and with our Defence Force, we do that by making sure that our Navy uh, and our Defence Force as a whole and their footprint and presence in the Pacific is one, welcome, two, meaningful, and three, of course, uh, has great impact. So we've got a, a, a challenge there to make sure that we can continue to do that. So on those issues around sovereignty, how might those concerns and those priorities for a New Zealand Defence Force affect what the shape of our Defence Force is in the future? Well, what we know is uh, defence attaches, for example, are a classic example of how a New Zealand Defence Force through their Defence Force personnel can have a meaningful impact in small countries and large countries, and I've seen it firsthand. We have amazing uh, defence attaches. Uh, I'm of the opinion we should do more there. Um, I know, for example, a number of defence attaches split themselves across multiple countries. Well, that's just difficult, in particular during a time of geostrategic competition like we're talking about. So that's one clear example of how we might be able to impact that. What about hardware? Well, hardware is also important, um, but it's got to be meaningful as well. So, for example, when uh, we responded in Tonga, Aotearoa and the Canterbury were the perfect ships to be able to respond. Um, it's no point sending a frigate up to respond to Haidar, which are quite a large number of the calls that we have into the Pacific. But we do need to make sure we have a strong presence. But I want to be clear too, you know, we're not the only ones here. Uh, of course, our friends Australia, uh, we want to be able to cooperate with yeah. them to do it effectively. But, but what hardware changes might be required for those issues around sovereignty? Uh, so, of course, the Navy. Um, the ocean is our playground, if you like, and making sure we have a Navy that can respond is important. Different weapons? 
Oh, well, at the moment you'll know we have uh, two frigates. Uh, the rest are uh, patrol vessels and, of course, our radar mm. uh, and resupply vessel. At the moment, I believe that it's fit for purpose, but the Defence Policy Review will continue to help us to make sure it's fit for purpose moving forward. Earlier this year, we spoke with China analyst Rodney Jones, who said the Solomons deal and China's no-limits deal with Russia meant New Zealand needed to more assertively defend its patch. He said we needed to expedite the procurement of drones and equip our military with anti-ship missiles. Mm. What is your response to that? That's what the Defence Policy Review, I'm hoping, will give us some clear guidance on. And let's be quite clear too, there is a challenge in the industry uh, with, the, with regard to defence. I know for a fact that many industries can't actually spool up fast enough to supply the countries uh, with the kind of defence mechanisms and platforms they need. Is there a foreseeable scenario in which New Zealand would reintroduce an Air Force combat wing? Uh, potentially. But like I say, the Defence Policy Review will what, have to do that, that work. Tell me about that, though. Tell me, potentially, what is that foreseeable scenario? Oh, look, I don't want to... What is the potential scenario? I don't want to crystal ball gaze, but what no, we but know is... But obviously you have something in mind, right? Well, what we know is... Being able to protect your own borders is really important and we can do that through the, our Navy as well as our Air Force and our Army. And so making sure they have the right uh, capabilities to do that. But let's make sure that the Defence Policy Review mm. unearths the sound rationale in order for any move in that of, direction. Of course, but you're considering a whole range of scenarios and I realise you aren't committed to that just yet, but there will be people who are very interested to hear that that is a potential scenario. So say, for example, if China were to be more... Um, assertive and Chinese vessels were to enter New Zealand's exclusive economic zone, would you support having something like an Air Force combat wing to defend New Zealand's patch? Look, if the security risk heightens as such, I think New Zealand should be able to respond. Uh, and that, as I said, should be across all three services. I want to talk about attrition. By historical standards, how bad is the Defence Force attrition rate right now? Uh, these are some of the worst rates we've seen, uh, the Defence Force has seen uh, in its history. Why? Uh, well, it's a combination of a lot of things. It's a smoking hot labour market at the moment. Uh, we're not the only country affected by this. Uh, the US, Australia have uh, attrition rates about, about the same as New Zealand. Uh, so we've got a hot, a white hot labour market, which is taking uh, very skilled, excellent, uh, disciplined and well-trained personnel from the Defence Force and utilising them in their businesses, which so why, is... why don't they want to stay in the Defence Force? Well, many of them look, you know, come to a point in time where they want to make a decision for themselves and their family and look to move on. Uh, but I but want why, to... why would they do that? Well, because perhaps whether it's uh, a matter of pay, whether or not it's a matter of lifestyle. For example, being deployed for six months on a Navy ship doesn't necessarily sit well with Fano. So I've already spoken to a number who have opted out. Um, they continue to commit themselves to being a reservist, etc. But they're just looking for other opportunities and I don't begrudge them that. Do you think you pay NZDF staff enough? Uh, me personally, I don't think we do. Uh, but, you know, we've made a contribution in this year's budget towards uh, remuneration. And while I accept that remuneration is one of those challenges that we're going to continue to work on, it isn't the silver bullet to this. I've spoken to a number who uh, have already just, you know, said that the MIQ was the last straw. Uh, and I acknowledge that and I want to thank them for their service. The $90 million that you committed in this year's budget, you said you wanted targeted at people in the lower end of the remuneration scale inside NZDF. So five months on, are Defence Force pay and conditions at their current rates enough to make it a competitive career? Um, no, and I'm upfront about that. It's a particular challenge with remuneration and making sure we have a work environment that they want to work in, which is why I'd always said that infrastructure was a key priority of ours to make sure, you know, housing, for example, and the bases are up to the kinds of standards that we expect our Defence Force personnel to live and work in. So why haven't you done more? Well, we, you know, we've done quite a lot. Uh, and you, you, can... you just said to me it's not enough. Well, because you can only have so many builders. There are challenges with, with, on... With remuneration, for example. Oh, with remuneration. Look, um, we were quite clear when I worked with the officials about what does a remuneration package look like? and those were the numbers that we came up with. But it's, it's clearly not enough. Precisely, which is why more work is being done now with myself and the Minister of Finance and my colleagues to see how we might be able to continue to help the so, situation. So will NZDF staff have to wait until the next budget to see those pay rises? Look, we're working on that right now and I can't give a time frame on that.
What else can you do to get people to stay? We can offer them opportunities to deploy overseas and uh, the recent 120 personnel to support Ukraine uh, in the UK is huge and I've spoken to a number of those people who have been involved in the training and those who have came back, who have come back, sorry, uh, who went over to do the artillery training and they absolutely loved it. They said, this is what we trained to do and they were proud to be able to use those skills to support others. So those are other opportunities that we can look at. Uh, and I think there are um, discussions to be had with our close partners, Australia and others, to look how we might do exercises together to once again expose our people to what's required to be sharp and ready for service. So when are we going to turn the tide? Because uh, last month the Chief of Defence, Air Marshal Kevin Short, gave an extraordinary inter interview to News Hub in which when asked about the remuneration and cost of living crisis, he said, quote, it doesn't address that at the moment, the remuneration we received earlier this year, and so we are falling further behind. That's the challenge in front of me, my friend, and we've got work to do to make sure that we can turn that tide. But let's be clear, the cost of living crisis isn't just affecting the Defence Force, it affects everyone in New Zealand. And if we look towards when we started our budget process on remuneration, the inflation rate has risen since then. So these challenges are growing. Uh, but what we know is we're doing our best to look to how we might be able to support NZDF personnel. You mentioned housing for NZDF staff, and that's been of some concern. At what point will all Defence Force housing in New Zealand meet the Healthy Homes standard? Well, the legislation made it quite clear that the New Zealand Defence Force is able to and has a certain period of time to do that. I've been advised that we are on track to meet that timeline. So when, when will that be? Uh, if I recall correctly, it is the middle of 2024, if I recall correctly. And how long will it take for Defence Force personnel numbers to reach the appropriate level? Well, that's why the Defence Policy Review is really important, to make sure that we do have the kinds of personnel and the size of the Defence Force that fits our current needs and our future needs. And uh, I don't want to uh, predetermine what that number might be, but I'm working hard, so too is this government, to make sure we can turn that tide. For some of the top trained positions with inside NZDF, Air Marshal Kevin Short said it could take up to a decade. Does that sound appropriate to you? Up to a decade to replace some of those missing roles? Well, because the, the challenge that we have in NZDF is you can't recruit into middle management. No. You have to grow them from the bottom. So, of course, then we've got to focus on recruitment. We've also got to focus on opportunities that allow for those who have stepped out but still want to be engaged, how might they be able to come back in and continue to offer support here where needed for the NZDF? But those are all uh, options we want to explore. After the break on Q&A, could Vladimir Putin use nuclear weapons? And what would it mean for the future of the war in Ukraine? Hoki mai, welcome back to Q&A. Defence Minister Peony Hienari has just returned from the Middle East, where he's been meeting with New Zealand personnel stationed at an international operation in Jordan. You've seen the NZDF staff at Operation Gallant Phoenix the massive US data tracking network following extremists in the region. What did your meetings there tell you about the state of ISIS? Um, that it's fluctuating, that it's an ever-shifting landscape where once recognised and clearly recognised cells uh, were apparent to most, now that's the dynamic has changed. Uh, and they made it quite clear to me that uh, it's getting harder and harder to be able to pick where these people are coming from or where they might be based or who they might be linked to. So uh, Gallant Phoenix is one of those uh, uh, operations that continue to uh, have New Zealanders support that effort and uh, have our eyes over that piece of work. And it was fantastic to see our people there. You've been in Egypt, you've been in the Emirates and in Jordan. How are those countries seeing the unrest in Iran at the moment? Look, they all discuss that matter and as you'll appreciate, they're bordered by many challenges and they were quite clear that the challenge in Iran uh, and Syria uh, were, were of significance to them. Um, political instability in that region tends to have a domino effect in other places around that region, which is why they were deeply concerned. Um, but as I've already mentioned to you, some of the challenges that they were uh, saying are more confronting for them in those unstable, uh, unstable times with those other countries, transnational crime tends to increase, refugee waves tend to increase in other countries, and those were the challenges at the forefront of their minds. Taking a closer look at New Zealand's role 
internationally. I was looking at our military spending compared to that of ours of some of our allies. So according to the World Bank, Australia spends about 2.1% of GDP on military spending, the US 3.7%, the UK 22 on defence spending, Chile 1.9%, South Korea 2.8% of GDP, New Zealand 1.5% of GDP. So as a percentage of GDP, why do we spend so much less than many of our allies? Well, look, I think um, it's one, it's the highest rate it's been certainly in my time it's in politics. It's still a lot lower though, isn't it? Look, and I know there are people set an arbitrary target because it's the one that NATO looks towards. Um, we, we are quite clear to make sure that our spending is fit for purpose. Mm. We aren't a large uh, a force, um, but we want to be one that's effective. So the Defence Policy Review will, I think, um, give us a clearer direction on spending. I think to meet uh, a number of the challenges that we're all facing at the moment, we are going to have to have a good hard look at what spending might look like. Uh, and what capabilities, of course, uh, we'll need to so respond. What message does that send our allies? Well, that's part of the m meetings I have with them is to discuss where we are, and you know. Uh, and how do they see New Zealand oh, when, they, when they see it so much lower than other countries? It's it's never been raised with me. When I've met with uh, Minister Miles, for example, from Australia, the first thing we talk about is certainly not spending. Mm. What we talk about is how can we be effective together. Mm. Uh, you know, take the AUKUS deal, for example. It's clear New Zealand aren't going to be in the nuclear submarine game. Um, but how can we work effectively together to get the best out of their capa uh, cap capabilities and our capabilities? We are, however, going to be in the Partners in the Blue Pacific partnership with the US. Does that mean New Zealand will be gathering and sharing sensitive defence-related intelligence as part of that operation? Look, you know, we uh, already do a fair amount of that work through a number of other arrangements and architecture and uh, the Five Eyes is one of those. We are a key partner in that and we'll continue to support those efforts to make sure that information gathering uh, is uh, specific as well as relevant to the challenges that we have. But does that deal mean New Zealand will do more spying on behalf of its allies in the Pacific? I won't comment too much more on that deal, my friend. Have you sought any advice on the likelihood of nuclear war in Ukraine? Um, uh, not specifically, but I have had... Um, you know, a number of uh, pieces of advice given to me from uh, not just officials but others outside of uh, parliament and politics who are concerned about these matters. Our Prime Minister's made it clear that diplomacy and de-escalation has to be uh, our priority here and any threat of use or use of certainly must be condemned not just by New Zealand but all international partners. How likely is it? do you think, um, the use of so-called tactical nuclear weapons? Look, the assessment that's been given to me it is, is that it is unlikely, um, but uh, we're, not the one, we're not the one hovering over the No one wants to run. roll the dice, right? No one wants to roll, and we, and we certainly don't want to see that. Um, and like I say, the Prime Minister's made it clear. So you have had that assessment done, though? We have had some work done to make sure that we understand the threat, uh, not just towards what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, but more broadly speaking. Have you had any further updates as to New Zealanders fighting in Ukraine? Uh, no, I haven't. How do you see the conflict ending? Um, it's too early to say with the onset of winter. It's obviously still um, uh, going quite strong over there. Mm. We're quite clear on our commitment and how we can support it, but we'll be watching keenly how it evolves. Finally then, this time next year we may have had an election. Mm. When will you decide about your future? Will you be standing in Tamaki? Look, I haven't decided about that just yet, and it's a year away. Um, but, you know, remember, uh, you know, I'm always of the opinion that, you know, you, you stay here as long as you've got something to contribute, and, you know, this is my third term now in Parliament, and, of course, like many of my colleagues, we should have a look at whether or not, uh, you know, you're up for the game next year. Sounds like you might not be. I just think, you know, these, these, it's been a challenging time and, you know, I've been a minister for five years and COVID was particularly difficult. So not just on me, but family and friends and everyone else. And I'm sure everyone asked the question, regardless of uh, the party or person, uh, as you roll into an election. You know, When do you think you will make that call? Oh, no time soon, my friend. Tēnā Thank you very much for your time. Tēnā Jack. That is Defence Minister Pēne Hienare. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook.
Coming up on Q&A, she helped to negotiate America's first bilateral climate change agreement and has worked with some of the world's biggest companies on emissions policies. Now this global expert has advice for Kiwi farmers. Kia welcome back. ACT wants the government to do more, to incentivise local councils to get houses consented with a scheme to share GST. ACT Deputy Leader Brooke Van Velden has had a member's bill pulled from the ballot set for its first reading early next month. Morena. Morena. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Well, the problem that I'm trying to solve is the fact that we don't have enough homes for people to live in currently in New Zealand. Um, and people uh, across Parliament from National and Labour have decided we need to change our planning laws to help build more homes, but I don't think that's the proper solution. When we talk to anybody who's involved in building homes, you know, architects, builders, councillors, uh, people actually in the council, uh, they tell us that it's infrastructure that's missing. That's what's stopping new houses being connected to the community. Um, and so I've looked at how we can incentivise councils to help build up, speed up the building process, uh, and it's through infrastructure financing and funding. They just don't have enough money to help more homes be connected to the community. Uh, so part of our solution is saying, you know, every year the government takes tax. Um, a lot of it, especially when it's for new builds and developments, mm. goes to government, but it's the council that are lumped with the cost of connecting that new home to the community. Why don't we give council back some of that money to help pay for the infrastructure that's missing to connect that house to the rest of the neighbourhood? Right, so give us a bit more detail about that. Explain how that GST sharing would work. Yeah, so currently it's a bit technical, but you've got a statistician has amount of money um, that's collected and it's called the value of building mm. um, and it's specific for new building and it looks at how much money has actually been placed there for new building development um, and then says you know if we have 15 percent going to government why don't we take half give that back to council and that means over a year you could end up with over a billion dollars going to local councils up and down new zealand to help pay for sewerage water roading all of those things that's needed to connect a new home to a community because when we talk to people about wanting more homes to be built uh, they say what's really lacking is just the infrastructure. That's what's holding us mm. back, not the zoning laws or anything that Labour and National talk about. It's the infrastructure. I think everyone agrees that infrastructure funding is critical if we want to increase our housing stocks. So the government this week announced another round of multi-million dollar spends on infrastructure to enable housing. And to be fair, they do it fairly regularly. They have an infrastructure accelerator fund as well. So why do you think that your approach is better than the government simply putting the money up when it's needed? I think the, the real issue here is that you've got councils recognising that they don't have the funds. You've got people in the community knowing they don't have funds the for infrastructure. The government is putting some in. So the government has decided to have a lump sum that people can come begging for. That means that the government has the ability to say, we like this project, we don't like that one, we'll fund this one, we won't fund that one. Um, that's giving more control to government mm. about where the houses will be built in an area rather than local council knowing where the infrastructure is needed and getting the money so they can incentivise growth around areas where they want to prioritise growth, not where the government wants to prioritise growth. See, that's interesting to me. So the, the, the issue you're raising there is one of centralisation rather than one of incentives. You're saying that, in one breath, the important thing about your bill is that it incentivises local, local councils to develop. But in, a, in one sense, there is already that incentive there. The money's just coming from a different place. And your issue is with centralisation. I think everybody's issue with, is with centralisation at the moment. I mean, we have a government that is going against local democracy and it's going to more towards having Wellington put in charge of everything. Mm. You know, you see it with Three Waters, you see it with the healthcare reforms, um, you see it even with some of the local democracy projects that's happening around our local councils. We know that there's a need for infrastructure. We know that councils don't have the money for it. Right. The government's response is, let's change all of the planning laws for the largest cities and go against what councils want. Then let's give them money that we want to spend on infrastructure that we like. The ACT Party is saying we need to have more local concern, more local voice. 
We know that the councils are crying out for money. Let's give them the money uh, and allow them to have the, the plans in place for the houses where they want to see development take place, not where the government wants to see it take place. So under this bill, your approach isn't targeted to any particular form of housing. What would that mean for housing intensification? Well, I think we do need some forms of housing intensification, mm. uh, but not on the scale that the, the government is wanting to do. Right. You know, if you look at just, for example, Auckland Unitary Plan, uh, there is the scope for hundreds of thousands of homes. That was Auckland deciding it had a plan for 30 years into the future for hundreds of thousands of homes. The government said, you're not intensifying fast enough. Right. The problem is that Auckland doesn't have the infrastructure to do it. They already have zoned land for intensification around areas where they want to put infrastructure in. Now the government is saying, let's intensify everywhere throughout Auckland, and it's going to make it so hard to plan but for that my intensification. Question is, my question is, what would your bill do to sprawl? Well, I think what you'd end up with um, is already the Auckland Unitary Plan. Mm. You know, it already has different areas of Auckland where it's got intensification needed, um, and you'd end up with uh, infrastructure going to where the new builds are going to help connect those local the communities. The problem is that it's cheaper to build infrastructure in the outer suburbs, isn't it, Th than it is in some of those more in intensive suburbs at the moment, or, or central suburbs at the moment. So in a sense, your bill, because there are no requirements as to the kind of housing that is built, could end up incentivising councils to consent housing way out in the suburbs, which makes the sprawl problem whole, a whole lot worse. Well, if that's your problem, then you really won't like what the government's done. Uh, they've made the intensification problem worse and the infrastructure problem worse by their new MDRS changes, or the three three-storey home changes going up everywhere across Auckland. What the Auckland Unitary Plan had was an area it had defined areas that mm. said this is where we want to intensify. It's around bus networks, it's around train networks. It gives people certainty over the future of if we develop a building here, we know we'll be connected to the community. Right, but, but I'm but, just talking about your bill though. There is nothing really to stop. I mean, councils would be, under your bill, surely incentivised to build the cheapest infrastructure possible that still supports housing, and at the moment, and, and I realise that this is a, a broad statement, but if we look at all cities in New Zealand, it is cheaper to build infrastructure way out in the suburbs than it is in more central suburbs. Well, we have to allow for both, and that's what, that's what the councils are allowing for, because people need choice. Mm. You know, some people want to live in apartments and high-rises, some people want to live with their quarter-acre quarter sections, and we should allow for both types of options. I think what we need to see is more homes being built, um, more choice in the market for people to live in the homes that they want, and to be able to be connected. So if we've got homes being built you know, already in areas that are on the outskirts of Auckland, mm. we need to make sure that mm. they can connect to the community and get back to work and get back to the schools. That's not really happening at the moment. Well, so far as I can see, there is no requirement in the bill for that additional funding that comes from the GST to be spent on infrastructure. So what is there to stop councils taking that GST and then spending it on other stuff? Well, I have a little faith. <laughs> a little faith? I have faith. Brooke, come on. You know, when, when you talk to people who are involved in building houses and you talk to people in, in council, mm. they say that they desperately need money for infrastructure to connect these homes to the communities. Mm. And if that is what they're calling for, that's where the money will be spent on. Um, but ultimately, you're also looking at councils you up and down. Councils? You're also looking at councils up and down New Zealand right yeah. at the moment that have seen a massive swing to the right. And I think it's because local people are saying we want councillors mm. that actually reflect us and they look at the problems of our communities rather than spending money on projects that we don't like. They want money spent on infrastructure and on things that will reduce crime in their communities. What will it cost the public service to administer this? Hardly anything at all. So I, I modelled this. Um, one part of it is that it's already data that's collected mm. by our government statistician, um, and it's very simple to administer, practically cost-neutral. All right. Well, thank you so much for bringing the policy to us. Um, happy birthday. You turned 30 yesterday? I did, thank you. <sighs> Feeling those creaking bones already? I hope you celebrated <laughs> last night.
I did. Thankfully, I had a great day. I went out to high tea with some friends and then we went out for a drink afterwards. Fantastic. Well, happy birthday. I hope you can celebrate a bit more today. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Jack. Brooke Van Velden. After the break, how should farmers pay for climate emissions? And the visiting expert who says that for all the debate so far, it misses a more important message about opportunity. Hoki mighty, we welcome back to Q&A. For the debate this week over agricultural emissions, a global climate policy expert says New Zealand doesn't focus enough on the opportunities that'll come from change within our agriculture sector. Global sustainability consultant Amy Christensen was in Aotearoa briefly this week for the agri-food tech sector's 2035 Oceania Summit. She's worked with the likes of the United Nations. Google and Microsoft on their climate initiatives. And in 1994, she was part of the team that negotiated the US's first bilateral climate change agreement with Costa Rica. I'm going to start with the big picture. October 2022, one needs only look around the world to see that catastrophic climate events are causing substantial damage. From a political policy and governance perspective, where are we in the fight against climate change? Unfortunately, where we are is the industrialized countries are doing far too little to address their historic emissions and causing of the challenges, the impacts, the suffering that's already happening around the world. And unfortunately, it's the people who have contributed the least to our climate challenge who are suffering the most in emerging markets and developing countries, people who are living in low island states people in Pakistan, with one third of that nation having just recently been underwater and trying to rebuild. And so there's a lack of moral leadership um, in spite of the fact that this is the greatest opportunity we have, is post-COVID, as we rebuild our economies, is to build back in a smart way for the climate and for the resilience of each of our nations, as well as a more stable planet, so it doesn't harm those who've contributed at least to the problem. Why is that? Why is meaningful, significant change so hard to achieve? We are trying to move very quickly to price something we haven't priced before, which is our greenhouse gas emissions. It clearly has a financial impact on our countries. Um, and we have legacy industries that have operated with no price on carbon. They've been able to operate using um, fossil fuels, whether it's in the transportation sector with gasoline, uh, shipping, uh, or it's in the power sector. And so there has been no guiding policy or too little guiding policy signal and pricing signal to accelerate our transformation to clean energy, which is actually far cheaper now uh, than most other sources uh, in the world. So right now, solar energy is the cheapest source of power for about 90% of the world. Um, and it's a matter of showing the legacy interests that they can be part of owning and operating these cheaper forms, cleaner forms of energy, mm. and win from being part of building this new climate smart future. I noticed that as well as noting the climate crisis, you framed this as an opportunity earlier in the interview. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if we could maybe talk a little bit about your own career. You've been working in the environment and energy space for decades now, and you were involved in negotiating the first deal between the United States and another sovereign nation when it comes to climate change, Costa Rica in 1994. Can you just yes. tell us a bit about that experience? Well, it was the Costa Rican's leadership. Uh, their leadership realized that protecting nature would set them apart. They could attract tourists who cared about the beauty of Costa Rica. They already had a relatively clean grid, sort of like New Zealand today, a lot of hydroelectric. They also had a lot of potential in geothermal, same with New Zealand, as well as solar and wind. Also, New Zealand has that potential. And they came to us and said, we want to cooperate with you to attract investment, to both protect our natural resources and to develop those renewable energy uh, technologies. America at the time had the leading solar, wind, geothermal companies. Mm. We also had capital looking to invest. Costa Rica had a nice stable uh, investment climate. And so it was a win-win opportunity for both of us to benefit their goals to be the greenest nation in the world and our goals to export our technologies and address climate change. New Zealand likes to think of itself and certainly presents itself as a clean and green uh, responsible global citizen but on a per capita basis we have a high emissions profile relative to other countries we are planning on buying vast quantities of international carbon credits in order to fund our reduction targets is New Zealand doing its bit not yet 
Um, unfortunately, when you look at the Climate Action Tracker, it's a very helpful website. It's really tracking every nation in the world and the state of their climate action. Uh, New Zealand is stated as highly insufficient to reach the goals of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, which is where we're all aiming post-Paris Agreement. We're already at 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We have a very short window to act, and New Zealand is off track, highly insufficient in its actions. Uh, in spite of the fact that it's been recently moving forward with some climate action plans, um, we all have to go much, much faster. In the United States, we're insufficient as well. Um, and unfortunately, when you look at that climate action tracker map around the world, we're all insufficient. We're not, no nation is yet on track to reach that 1.5 degrees C. How do you assess our agricultural industry at the moment? Well, again, there, I think it's an opportunity to turn risk into opportunity. So where is New Zealand selling its agricultural products? Do they care about the greenhouse gas footprint of those products? Is there an opportunity to do some more value-added products and to change the practices in how those agricultural products are being grown? So in the case of dairy, of course, major sector here, there's the opportunity to turn to regenerative practices where you can move the cows around in an intensive grazing practice. It restores carbon in the soil, creating real climate benefits and reducing the footprint of that dairy that you're growing, as well as, of course, capturing the methane to generate power. So there are multiple opportunities and really exciting new technologies. I work with a company that does cultivated steak. It's lab-grown steak in a, in a lab, and you take cow, uh, cells from a healthy living cow, you surround it with amino acids and sugars. Three weeks later, you have a steak, uh, non-GMO and uh, no waste, and 85% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. Could New Zealand's agricultural sector, they're also doing cultivated milk, um, become a leader in cellular milk, cultivated milk, um, and in regeneratively uh, more small-scale uh, milk, which people will value because of the carbon footprint, and there may be a price on that carbon. Mm. So it will be a more cost-effective and more diversified agricultural opportunity for New Zealand. I think in the eyes of many in New Zealand, part of the reason we were able to keep our economy in a relatively strong position yep. through the pandemic was because of commodities, and because we were able to export milk powder at a relatively high price throughout that period. And actually it was our agricultural sector that helped the rest of the New Zealand economy through that period. So what would be your response to that? That's a great point, and I think that there are these short-term examples that we can grab onto, but what happens the next time when you actually have a price on carbon and shipping those milk proteins brings that footprint up even higher than the methane emissions, and you have buyers who actually are unable to purchase your product because of the greenhouse gas emissions footprint of that product. Because as we see more and more climate disasters, we will have more and more companies and more and more countries demanding that agricultural products, all products, have a net zero or even zero carbon footprint going forward. So the, there may be some short-term opportunities, but strategically, can you rely on those relationships and those markets if they're so hyper-concentrated? Will it be possible for New Zealand to keep dairy herds at their current size <laughs> and meet our um, emissions targets? I don't know. It depends upon the practices that are undertaken and the land that you have. With New Zealand, I think the question is, what are the strategic economic opportunities for the future of the country? Mm. Is it tourism and therefore the protection of nature and water quality and water quantity, which may come at, be coming at the expense of the agricultural sector? Um, is there a way to consider what is the value of the use of water, of your lands, of nature, and make some strategic assessments of can we shift our agricultural practices to be perhaps more regionalized and more regenerative so that you may not have these hyper-concentrated high water use dairies, but actually are um, more quality products. So yeah. you don't hyper-inflate um, the efficiency, you actually have a higher value product, so you can have perhaps fewer but still have the same jobs and income. So looking strategically at the agricultural sector um, and your land, 
and the value of your use of your land and water make that assessment. I just haven't made that assessment, so I can't answer that question. How do we speed up the change then to, to, to a higher value export economy? How, how, who is responsible for pushing that change through? I think it's a partnership between government and the private sector to have an honest conversation about how do we diversify and how do we strategically position ourselves to lead with the expectations of the future of food and agriculture and the expectations and the goals of New Zealand as a nation. What is your brand? 100% pure the tourism, the nature that's here, is that compatible with food and agriculture leadership? Absolutely. But what does that food and agriculture need to look like? Is it more regenerative? Is it more cultivated? Is it more, um, more compatible with the rewilding of degraded lands um, because of the importance of stabilizing the soils? and the climate, the pollinators that you need to have successful food and agriculture. It's, a, it's about a, a conversation between government and the private sector, to have, but, but to have the government really take that lead and say, we have to, for the good of New Zealanders, for the good of the nation's economy, for the good of the climate, we want to lead. How do you, food and agriculture sector, help us to meet those goals? And what do you need from us regulatorily, incentives, uh, risk guarantees? If they're going to change practices, government can step in, mm -hmm. as what the United States is doing right now with the Inflation Reduction Act, is helping to give grants to Frito-Lay and some of the big growers of potatoes to test out regenerative practices with reduced risk because there's some government support there to test these future activities and remove the risk from the private sector. But it needs to be a collaborative, honest conversation and government needs to wield some, some heft there. I started this conversation by looking at the big picture and I want to end it by doing the same thing. You've been working in this space for three decades now. Do you have the faith that our species has the capacity to solve this problem? I have to. <laughs> I've always had to have hope. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen fearless leadership by government leaders, by business leaders. Um, in the face of, you know, was this necessarily going to be the short-term economic, politically easy decision? Not necessarily, but respect of um, the public uh, who are voting for them, by the, the consumers who want the brands they're buying from to be leading on climate change, the expectations of young people. This can be, um, it can be a win for government and for business leaders and for the agricultural sector. Um, so let's together figure out how we take it forward. And I've seen the evolution of technologies, clean energy prices dropping 90% in 10 years in solar. So I've seen it happen in the beginning. It was about the moral case for action. Now the economic case is right there. We just have to figure out together how do we make it happen. That is global climate policy analyst Amy Christensen. After the break on Q&A, a year from the election, the Opportunities Party reckons it can see a path to Parliament. Kia ora koutou, welcome back to Q&A. In politics, as in life, everyone's got to start somewhere. And having existed for six years, the Opportunities Party has had a candidate elected to political office for the very first time. Here's Fina Owen. Yes, the South Wairarapa town of Featherston has elected the first Opportunities Party candidate to an official office. Last Saturday, resident John Dennison heard he'd been voted in as a community board member. So when I finally um, phoned up the council and um, spoke to the person and said, well, you've been elected, um, I was absolutely delighted. I mean. Uh, you know, the first, first top candidate to, uh, to be elected uh, to office is, uh, I say it, I expect in a Wikipedia entry, I do. John's just a great guy, and, you know, we're really thrilled that he's been elected. So we'll have to get out of the rain, so we'll have a chat with you. Good Wellington weather. Over the hill in Wellington, top party leader Raf Manji was keen to thank all the top candidates who ran in the locals. A number of our candidates, you know, called up and said that we'd like to run under the top brand. And I said, sure. I mean, we weren't running a local campaign, you know, officially. So that we had four candidates. John was one of them. So tell me what you do in your day job. All oh, right. So I, I drive um, an ambulance. I transport people from Marston Hospital. You're an ambulance I, driver. I'm an ambulance driver, um, but it's pretty um, low key. And what is it about top you like? 
Oh, it's the lack of dogma. Uh, it's the wanting to get things done, the values that they have about caring for people and um, actually trying to come up with policy that works rather than, than actually has a, a particular left or right slant to it. So, Rafe, I feel I'm confused about where you sit yeah. on the spectrum. Yeah. I've got some leaves oh. I picked up around Parliament. I did not pick them off trees. There's your twig. Yes. So this is the far <laughs> left, far right. Yes. Like, where is top? Right there. So you are centrist? Yeah, I mean, we are the progressive centre. I think that's the key thing. You know, we want to take New Zealand forward. We want opportunities for all. We want to build a fair society. Oh, you're lovely, aren't you? John's victory has given the party a little boost ahead of election 2023, but they're still at just 2.5%. For a new party trying to break into Parliament, you know, with the 5% threshold, it's very challenging. And, you know, it takes you a few goes to get in, so hopefully this time we'll make it. Top has its sights set on the Islam electorate, a seat held for 23 years by Nationals Jerry Brownlee. Last election, Sarah Pallett took it for Labour, and recently Brownlee announced he's off to the list. He's not standing in the next election, so that opens things up. So what are you going to do? You're standing. I'm standing in Islam, and hopefully I'm going to win the seat and represent the people of Islam in Parliament. But obviously an electorate seat means that we will be in, um, and we will bring MPs in with us, which is you know, absolutely critical. Today I'm launching a political party. Top has contested two elections since Gareth Morgan started the party six years ago. Let's talk about tax, baby. Jeff Simmons then took over the leadership, followed earlier this year by Raf Manji. I spent 10 years in London in the 90s, trading global markets for investment banks. Moved to New Zealand in 2002. Spent the next 10 years working for non-profits, volunteering, uh, in and out of university. And then post-earthquakes got involved in the recovery and spent six years on council as the chair of finance, trying to sort out the uh, post-earthquake finances for the council, uh, dealing with the terror attacks, which was very challenging. And now this is the, the next phase. Raf Manji has stood for Parliament before. That was in Islam in 2017 as an independent. I came second. I think I got the highest result for an independent under MMP, uh, just over 23% of the vote, uh, second to Jerry. And it was people who saw me as someone who'd been their city councillor, who underst understood the issues. Let's get to the business. Top is well known for supporting a universal basic income, but phase one would be a tax switch. No tax paid on the first $15,000 earned. But how can you pay for that? Well, that's the good question. So um, the tax cuts in total around $6.3 and we're also going to apply on the other side a land value tax, which is essentially a, a small tax um, levied annually on the value, the land value of residential land. We're taking the burden off incomes and we're placing it onto land. And that's essentially what our problem is. Land housing has become way too expensive relative to incomes. Along with their new tax policy, Top recently launched their new look. Gone are the red and blue branding colours. Well, what we have is teal. So essentially, you know, people are asking us, are you the mythical blue-green party? Which, of course, we are in some respects. You know, we're very strong on the environment, we're very strong on business, and we're very strong on social issues. But teal is our colour. And, you know, if you look at what happened in Australia in the last election, the teal wave came through, and we're hoping that's going to happen next year for so us. So the teal is symbolic? Yes, absolutely. It's blue-green. I mean, I'm terribly colourblind, so I can't tell, but I'm told it's a mixture of blue and green. Yes, this is uh, our Featherston Op Shop. Back in Featherston, John's now keen to get stuck in. In Featherston, my portfolio, if you will, is going to be on affordable housing. But first, Opportunity Party members on both sides of the hill will be getting together to raise a glass to the first elected party faithful. Yeah, it should be a bit of a shindig, which will be, be quite nice to, to celebrate a, a little bit of success. And, um, you know, hopefully it's just the start of things. That is Fina Owen reporting. And Kuamutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you very much for your feedback. We are off next week for the Labour Day holiday. But hey, a Kuamutu, we'll see you again in a fortnight. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.